Hey everyone, this is Will from Charlotte, North Carolina, and welcome to this brand new and exciting episode of The Missing Piece. More than a dozen mutinous soldiers declared Monday on state television that a military junta has seized control of Burkina Faso after detaining the democratically elected president following a day of gun battles in the capital of a West African country. After the televised announcement, crowds took to the street, cheering in honking cars who were in the support of the takeover. People hoped that the coup would ease the devastation they have endured since the jihadist violence spread across the country. So what is happening in this country and how should we make of the ongoing chaos in Burkina Faso? Ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our international journalist, Amaka Okoya. And she's a seasoned and award uh, journalist who has practiced both in and outside Nigeria. She has covered various beats, but her forte is conflict and crisis reporting. She majors in reporting terrorism, penetry, and abduction in the northern part of Nigeria. And now she currently works as an international journalist in the DW West African region. Now, Amaka, welcome to The Missing Piece. Thank you, Will, for having me. Now, let's get to the most important question is, Amaka, can you briefly describe where you are located right now? And also in terms of the current situation in Burkina Faso, what can we understand? We are speaking to you from Lagos, Nigeria, which is the commercial nest center of Nigeria. And if we look at the situation in Burkina Faso, it's unfortunate really to say that we're talking about school already. It's just the first month of the year 2022. And Africa is seeing yet another coup. I mean, West Africa region is particularly seeing yet another coup. And that's, that's just 19 months ago when we had you know, the ones that we had. We had Mali, we had Guinea, and here we are. Mm. And Burkina Faso, going into having another coup in Burkina Faso, obviously, is an affront to democracy in Africa. Again, many people have argued, really, do we have democracy in Africa? Are we practicing democracy? And if not, why are we not able to do that? But this, again, is a statement when there is a military takeover such as this, is a statement to say, well, the civilian rule isn't working. Mm. And if the civilian rule isn't working, then that's when we have situations like this, when democratically elected leaders are deposed and, you know, military take power by force. And that's exactly what has happened now in Burkina Faso. But what makes it a bit interesting, if you like, uh, for Burkina Faso, is the fact that over time and historically, when we see coup, it's usually maybe military coming to take power, and we don't see as much as the support that we have seen in Burkina Faso from, you know, civilians. I mean, Burkina Faso themselves, it's like, this is what we've been asking for, mm. you know. And uh, an activist was heard speaking, I believe it's two days ago, saying, you know, we've been asking the President Robert Kabore to leave and, you know, to leave his seat because he's not able to solve the situation of um, militancy in the area, insecurity, and all of that, but he's, you know, he didn't do that until the military uh, took over power. So it, for the people, it's like, um, this is answered prayers, so to say. But again, Will, the, the, the thing is that we cannot say it is victory already because you, you, don't know, you we do not know whether indeed the military is going to do as they have promised 
while we hope that they are going to quell the situation and be able to resolve the issue of insecurity and instability in the region and militancy in the region, uh, one can only hope that you know um, they return back to civilian rule. But again, as you do know, hope is not a strategy. Mm. Amaka, I like what you said. Hope is not the only strategy, but you know, let's bring us into the reality. Right now, we just step into the first month of 2022. And compared with our previous years, that we know that word democracy was such a buzzword. Across the continent, many countries, especially in the African continent, the countries went through this revolution and pushed the idea for democracy. So you as an international journalist and you travel extensively and you are covering the intensity in Burkina Faso. So I want to get to the next question is, from your perspective, what does the word democracy mean in this country today? very crucial question, uh, Will, uh, because if in the right word and in the right interpretation and meaning of it, that it is the government of the people, for the people with this word, which is now a cliche, that is unfortunate to let you know that that's not what is happening. Because if it is a government where the people have got their own voices heard, then we would not see what we think. If, if the democracy was really, really practiced, then we should not get to the situation where the military would, you know, come as far as deposing an electri- um, democratically elected president. So um, I would really say, but with a lot of responsibility, that democracy is far-fetched. Um, it's, it's, um, it's more like wishful thinking when you think of it in reality. Because when the people are not able to get the dividends of governments, then the government is not for them. It's not working for them. I mean, when you hear the shared demonstration of happiness in the streets of Ouagadougou mm-hmm. and in other parts of Burkina Faso Empire, for instance, which is the fifth largest city in the country, the sheer joy and jubilation that we saw the, the people break into when it was finally declared a co right after the announcement by the military on the television just tells you that indeed there is no democracy. If he was working, people would not rather choose the military rule, a military government, with forceful takeover as we have seen if there was democracy. So I think that over time, what we have seen is, um, you know, it's almost looked like authoritarianism uh, flirting around with with what we seem to be a democracy. But in, in, in the real sense, we are really, really far from it. And that, that's again why I say it is concerning and it is worrying that just we're only in the first month of 2022 and we are already beginning to see this sort of thing happening. You do not know when next is going to be in the region. And like I mentioned earlier, when there is, um, of course, we've had the sanction from the ECOWAS, which is the regional block, when there are coups coups like this, and there is no action taken, you know, you're going to likely see more of it. Mm. Because, like you say, copycat situation. So another country will say, well, we can also do the same. Right. The government is not working for us. If it's not working for us, we might as well do the same. Uh, So it's a dangerous path, but again, it's a statement uh, that Africa needs to really rethink democracy. And not just rethinking democracy, but interpreting it in the, in the form that leadership really works for the ordinary person. Yeah. 
Amaka, you touch on very good point. As a matter of fact, you sort of answer my next question, but I still wanted to uh, to press forward. Now, this is only one incident. It's happening in one of the countries on the African continent. So that's why I, w I mean, again, just go with what you said. Other countries, if they are seeing what's happening in Burkina Faso, people are more likely to follow the same module or people are more likely to follow the same procedure to say, hey, if this is working in this neighboring country, maybe we should do the same thing. So in other words, don't you think such political shifts or such political upheaval could actually turn into chaos for any other countries, which is close to Burkina Faso, but meanwhile, they might not be ready for any other sorts of political transition. Because we know that when military is taking over the country, you as an international journalist, and you know more than or better than I do, that's a very dangerous ground. And given this in the history, people might enjoy what we call the momentous pleasure, but in the long run, military strategy might not be the effective or the ideal way to govern the country, don't you think? Absolutely correct, Will. I mean, with the benefits of history, let's take a look at what happened in March. Uh, when the military took over power, they said they are going to return to civilian rule, you know, as soon as they can. And then there were negotiations and conversations, and they said, well, they're going to do that in February of this year. But what happened? Fast forward to last month, I believe, uh, this month, they said, well, they're going to hold on to power to 2025. Now, that's them not keeping the promise. Mm. Okay, so that's why it is concerning. Much as, yes, there is tribulation, and typically when there is this sort of takeover of power, the military come in almost like the savior, the messiah, the people are happy. But in the long run, what we know historically is the fact that it does not just end the way it started. Now, if I quickly take you back to Burkina Faso, as much as we know that a lot of people are happy, there is that um, acclaim of what the military is done by deposing mm. Kabobe and, of course, dissolving the, the parliament and suspending the, the, the constitution, there is still the tiny voice. There is still, you know, the, some part of the people who are saying, we hope that the military is going to keep the promise. Mm. The promise of bringing back security, the promise of giving them a better lifestyle, the promise of, you know, stabilizing the region. So it's not just, you know, that moment, the, the thing of, oh, they're taking over power and we are happy, but then they go back to making it worse. Like you say, I mean, it's never the best to have a military takeover. Uh, people with experts will say that, look, these guys are trained to war. These guys mm. are trained to be in the barracks. These guys are trained to safeguard the nation, you know, when there is crisis and when there are conflicts. That's what they are trained for. Typically, you don't have them take over power because that's not what they are trained for. So when we get to the point where they are now the only resort of the people. It may just be for the moment, you know, uh, but, you know, if we in, in, in put it by extension in the future, it may not be the best form of leadership to be adopted. So when there is a problem, the, the, the challenge here is the fact that, yes, while um, we are grateful, or the Kinovans are grateful that they are able to depose the president because he's not been able to manage the security situation, he's not been able to take care of, you know, you know protecting the lives of his people. Remember that we had mm. over 50 people who were killed, 
And 49 of them were officers and, of course, civilians. And that's what escalated to what we saw as meetings before eventually they deposed him. It is also a fact that military rule had never been the solution. Schools mm. have never been the solution. It's just a matter of people have no choice. When people have been pushed beyond what they can take, so it looks like, oh, let, let the military come do the job since the civilian rule is not working. Let the military come to do the job. Let them come to save us. But the real question will be, are they going to essentially deliver the dividends of democracy? Mm-hmm. Are they going to essentially bring stability you know, for the long haul? Are they going to have negotiations to say, well, we've dissolved this government. We are, we are now putting up a new institution. We are going to suspend the, the constitution, for instance, and we've dissolved the cabinets and the parliament. Are they going to now be able to put a leadership system in place for the Kina base such that moving forward you say, well, yes, this is the military that took over, but we've returned, we've reshuffled the whole system and be able to put everything in place. Will, I can only say that time will tell us what was certain. We do not know if that will be achieved, and that's the most crucial part of all of this conversation, if you ask me. And also, I have to say that, Amika, that people in Burkina Faso right now they're actually placing a very dangerous bet. So in other words, we don't know what the future holds, but again, according to what you said, this might be the the only solution that they have. But let's go back to the country. The entire thing was incited because the jihadist violence spread across the country. Now, can you tell us a little bit more how how bad was it in terms of this jihadist violence? So in other words, what was actually, I don't want to use the word turning point, but I think at this moment, that might be the better phrase is, what was the turning point eventually led people to say enough is enough, okay? Especially the younger generations in Burkina Faso to believe, to say, hey, listen, if we don't get this guy out of this government, if we don't get the leader out of the government, this person is going to drive the country to the ground because the jihadist the violence. How bad was it? Right. I mean, it, it is very right if you say what is the turning point, if you choose to use that word, because essentially that's what we'll see. Uh, for a country, uh, I mean, like Burkina Faso, uh, that uh, uh, President Kabore was re-elected in Okay, before now, um, he was seen as the one who's to lead the country out of tyranny, out of all of the chaos that they've seen, out of all of the insecurity that they've seen, out of all of the militancy that was quite, quite active and making the region very resty, you know, at that time. But unfortunately, it seemed that he wasn't able to deliver because even, I mean, who would, who would imagine that your military personnel are not well-equipped to fight a group as vicious as you know, militants that are associated to Al-Qaeda and ISIS. I mean, that's suicidal to think, to think of it. Mm-hmm. In the real sense, the military are not asking for too much. Your military personnel are saying, we need to be well equipped. We need more resources. We need support for those who are in the front line. We need welfare for those who have been wounded, wounded soldiers and all of that. I mean, before that, one of the things that we heard is that the soldiers before the mutiny, the soldiers had gone two weeks without food ration. Mm. That is unheard of. Mm. How do you really want 
your, I mean, how? It's inconceivable. How on earth do you really want these people to be able to save God, the nation, when they don't even have as little as their food? So he has terribly failed the people, you know, in that, in that, in that right. He has failed the people and the military are like, no, we're not going to continue with this guy. If you don't see the need that we see, then who else? We, you might as well just go out of the way. And let me tell you, Will, President Rockabori himself has seen the handwriting on the wall. You know, so this school did not really come as a surprise. Before now, of course, you know historically that Virginia Castle has never really lost any code. That's fact. right. They've lost just one historically. So he, he's seen the handwriting on, on the wall. If you, as you may know, the person who planned, you know, this code is, is his own colonel, whom he just replaced, whom he just raised his rank to a commander just a few months ago. And he is the one that took him out. That's a clear statement. So President Rockabori already knew that something is in the works. But again, he did not take action when he was supposed to take action. So it's already too late for him to be able to remain in power. So, I mean, going back to your question, yes, it's um, the, the insecurity situation in Burkina uh, Faso um, is the crux of the matter. As you do know, that region is um, the, the, the militants are still very, very active. There's still violence, extremism, you know, active in that region. And for them to be able to reclaim their land, to reclaim their country, to reclaim their nation, there must be a security architecture that is functional mm. and that is seen to be able to deliver on that. And so when the number one person in the country, the commander in chief, is not able to do that, to hold his army together, his military together, and to be sure that his people are safe and you know, security is assured, then this was bound to happen, unfortunately. Mm. Um, you know, this was definitely going to happen. And even as of, as of Sunday, most experts were already saying, look, this is a coup. Mm. This is not an attempted coup. I mean, yes, Defense Minister Bartholomew was very quick to go on national TV and say all this well. Sure. But it, it was just less than 24 hours for everything to you know, escalate. And then it descended into chaos and cool. So obviously, this was going to happen. And these guys are very, very well calculated. I mean, the guy who deposed him, the mayor himself, he's been in the military, you know. He's, he's written a book also. He had written a book earlier on terrorism, you know, so this would show you this distance have always been there. Mm. And it's unfortunate that, you know, African leaders um, choose not to do what they're supposed to do in the lifetime. And when you don't do the right thing, you know, there's the saying that when you allow the wrong people to be in the right place, everything is going to go haywire. That's mm. what we've seen, unfortunately, in Amaka, I do have two more questions. Now, what's happening in Burkina Faso, of course, does not just make the news headlined within this own country. But, you know, thanks to the technology across the uh, world, people in other countries are actually watching what's happening in this country. Very likely, too often when we say when country in one corner of the world it's suffering from political uh, suppression or political corruption we are expecting or the people are expecting any other country supposed to step in to soothe out the relationship or at least 
quote, save the people from the tragedies. Now, the question to you is, you are the journalist on the ground. If any other countries were to decide to step in to help Burkina Faso, number one, is it necessary for any other countries to step in to help at this moment? And second, if so, what will be some of the most feasible or realistic approaches for them to take? All right, so let's begin by talking about the ECOWAS, which is the regional block. And, you know, the body that Burkina Faso also belongs to is a 15-member countries in this block. Uh, their sole responsibility is to be able to regulate things like this, is to be able to say, you know, to play the big brother role, if you like, to say, mm. hey, Burkina Faso, you can't continue that Yes, we, we know that as soon as this happened, they eventually put out a statement to say, oh, they condemn this, and they're asking those who are holding, you know, President Kabore and other members of the cabinet to let them go and to say that, well, uh, President Kabore did now depose President Kabore uh, had to step down because of intimidation and threats. And right. of course, we saw the letter that was published online uh, that showed his letter of resignation. Now, the echo was, uh, is now is having a meeting tomorrow, Friday, to discuss all of this code that is happening in the region, particularly because I think this is a slap, if you like, uh, that just 19 months ago, they were talking about the other code in Guinea and in Mali, and here, just at the beginning of the year, there is yet another one. How many more are we going to see before 2022 mm. is over? If you're beginning the year, this way, how many more are we going to see? And that's the thing of talking about copycats. So if country A is done it and nothing happened, or oh, ECOWAS is imposed sanctions, okay, so that's it. And what next? The question is, what next? If there is nothing else, so we might as well take out anything that we think is not doing his job and then solve the situation ourselves. But that's not really always the case. You solve mm. the situation yourself. So, um, yes, should countries intervene? Yes and no. First of all, in Burkina Faso, for instance, they said, look, we don't even want to be echoed. I mean, we mm. saw the case uh, that, you know, on, on, from local media. We saw the people saying, look, we don't want echoes. You're not doing anything. You're not for us and all of that. That's already saying, look, we're not interested in whatever you're going to do. Secondly, as soon as army took over power, they dissolved the cabinet, they suspended the constitution, mm. right? And they closed the borders. That's saying typically what we, what ECOWAS would do is to right. sanctions. Mm. Uh, they either take you out of the member block, or that's in the extreme cases, or they impose sanctions, say, for instance, you may not get economic aid again, they close your borders, there's no way to the business interaction, or bilateral ties between you and other uh, neighboring countries. But before the, the ECOWAS would do that, that's that's what I'm trying to say, that it's like, oh, but you're not the human taking a step ahead. They have already closed the borders themselves. That's saying, you know what? Keep your economic case to yourself. You know what? We're going to be fine without you guys. You know what? We don't even need your intervention. So it kind of puts ECOWAS in that situation where it looks like, oh, these guys don't need us. But however, we're still going to step in because it is our duty. It is our role to be able to do that. But beyond that, Will, the question will be how effective is the presence of ECOWAS in the region? Does That's right. Because if Burkina Faso is already saying, look, we don't need you, say, oh, well, you might as well just say where you are. So you could attempt to help the neighboring country. Mm. But then again, in the neighboring country, if the country says, well, we are not interested, well, there is really nothing that you can do. 
Now, the problem with that position is everybody in Burkina Faso seems to be basking in the euphoria of euphoria of we military has taken over power. Oh, we have been redeemed. Oh, we have been saved. But what is dangerous is that you do not know how does this new leadership translate and how does that affect the ordinary man mm. in Burkina Faso who is going to need to go to farm on a daily. Is he still safe? Is this safe to go to the farm? The ordinary man who is going to go to the market, the taxi business woman, is this still for them to be able to do that? What's going to happen to their finances? What's going to happen to the economy of the country? What is going to happen you know, to their relationship with other countries, those who've got businesses from neighboring countries? If you close the borders, what does that mean? Mm. So, so it's way complex beyond, oh, just military taking over, closing the borders and saying, oh, ECOWAS sanctions, you all be on your own, we can handle it. Well, you can handle it, but you just may need your neighbor. So in other words, this country, it's showing the attitude to the outsiders to say, stop putting your fingers in my pie. So in other words, since we are handling this on our own, if we need help, we will call you. But otherwise, stay in your lane. I think this is a very typical political reaction when the country is undergoing this tremendous financial, political, or social changes. Now, my next question is, Amaka, you covered extensively regarding humanitarian crisis, you know, including the reality of internally displaced person as a result of Boko Haram insurgency and now scattered in several camps. So from your professional journalistic background, can you share with us briefly how dangerous or how sensitive it is today when you cover as a journalist regarding this uh, related to terrorism or related to a uh, terrorist uh, uh, incidents? I will, uh, I think it is the consciousness, the knowledge of knowing that every story needs to be told is what would make you to continue to go to sedentary. Mm. But that does not take away the fact that we are talking about very, very volatile areas. We're talking about very, very risky places. We are talking about places where most times you know, it's inaccessible to journalists or to whoever, humanitarian aid, whatever it is. Um, but having said that, you know, when you are on the outside, let, let me put it that way, you may not be necessarily in touch of the reality. Sure. So the government is here. Right. The government is here. It's making policies. It's dishing out sanctions. It's saying this. It's saying that. But the people are here. Mm. And they are the ones who are getting the brunt of all of this. So you say, for instance, oh, the, let's use Burkina Faso now as, as an example. The, the military is saying, we need more equipment. We need to fight these people. We're on the front line. We need to meet them head on. Mm. And the government is saying, oh, well, we're going to deploy, we are going to get the equipment, we are going to send them, in another one month you'll get it. But before you get to one month, the people who are here are already died. Mm. Okay? The militants, the terrorists, the bandits, whatever you call them, they have no time to bargain. They don't, they don't waste any time. They hit, they attack. Right. So in the end, it's the common person who suffers the most. And from my own experience, I can tell you for free, Will, that 
the common man is not interested in the policies that you're talking about. So long as the policies does not translate to food on my table, protection, which means that, oh, I have, we have for instance, security personnel in our communities, or if I'm going to the farm, nobody's going to kidnap me, nobody's going to rape me, nobody's going to kill me. Mm. All of the policies have no meaning whatsoever to the ordinary person. So essentially, these continue to be crucial conversations that we need to have, but beyond the rhetoric will, beyond the government's promises, actions that translate to indeed solving the problem of the people, providing humanitarian aid, providing food, providing medicines for those displaced in the country, providing shelter, providing counseling, providing mm. therapy, all kinds of everything that you can name. Practically speaking, that's what matters to the common person. It's not about the policies that is made in, you know, in the parliament or is made wherever. It is about how does this translate to the ordinary man feeling safe? Mm. How does it translate to the ordinary man having food? How does it translate to having functional education where children can go to school and not be deprived of their education? How does this translate to hospitals that are functional? So when somebody is sick, you can have a place to be treated and all of that. So it is beyond policy. It's about human being mm. in the end. And that's why I say the only reason why we'll go to this place and tell the stories is because these are human beings. These mm. are people with flesh and blood. These, when a bomb is thrown, it lands on human beings, it lands on somebody's whole house. You know, somebody's whole everyday work for just is, is destroyed in a space of a second is the reality. Mm. But if we don't continue to hop on that reality, we may just and it may just all be all oh, just statistics and figure. Oh, a thousand people have been caught, two thousand people were killed in Burkina Faso. It becomes statistics and figure. We quickly forget that we're talking about human beings. And so that's why government policies must move beyond the rhetoric mm. and to transmit it to how does this help the human being? How does this alleviate the sufferings of those who've been displaced, people who have become refugees in their homelands, people who do not have anywhere again to mm. go because of all of this Amaka, I have one more question before letting you go. I know you're verily, uh, fairly busy and I really appreciate your time and insights. Now, since the world today as we are speaking most of the countries today are still battling with the pandemic and we know that throughout the entire pandemic one thing that the leaders across the continent have learned and i hope that they are still learning that collaborative work could bring positive results so in other words when the world is facing this major crisis no one single country can offer this effective solution now, with that said, terrorism is still one of the important and the threatening issue, not just to uh, the country in Burkina Faso, but also across the continents. So you as a journalist, let's go back to the foundational question. Since the world is still battling with a pandemic in the year of 2022, from your perspective, how much interest do you think the world has today in terms of dealing with terrorism? So in other words, to say terrorism, let's put on the back burner. Why? Because the pandemic is more threatening than ever. But to me, as also an international journalist, Amaka, I kid you not, I would never place terrorism on the back burner. As a matter of fact, 
I think this is more fatal and more violent and extreme than any other situation that we can imagine. Number one, won't you agree with me? And number two, what is your take on that? I completely agree with you. I completely and totally agree with you that we cannot dismiss it. We cannot pretend that it's not happening and we cannot relegate it to the background. That would be very, very, that would be a huge mistake to ever even imagine that we should do that. It is true that the world is busy uh, chasing the reality of the pandemic, you know, and finding, looking for solutions. Hopefully, you can find a solution collaboratively. Um, however, I think with the things happening with this cause that we've seen, it's still a reminder to say we have a major issue here. We have terrorism still very, very active in different regions, in different parts of the world. Just like the pandemic is a global issue, terrorism is a global issue. And so when you think, oh, it's, 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 oh, it's Burkina Faso, I mean, I mean, I'm in America, how is that going to affect you? Mm. I kid you not. It's going to affect you because humanity is the same. It's going to affect you because for all you know, we have something to do in Burkina Faso, but if it's the Western region, you cannot. You may have a business to do, you may have whatever to do. If Burkina Faso has closed its borders, for instance, you cannot get it, no matter how crucial that thing you want to do is. And that's why we cannot say, oh, it's just terrorism, it's not as serious, or it's just a militancy, it's not as serious. It is damn serious. It is very, very serious, and it's important that we do not we do not downplay it. And I say, and I mean, I mean, I'm so not just because I'm, I'm a journalist, but I'm totally grateful for the work that we journalists do, being able to go in there and to tell the story. Because what happens is, if it is not talked about, it's forgotten. And by the way, if it is not seen, people may not believe it. Mm. And that's why we're grateful for what technology has done for us. Uh, because if there was no technology, you and I would not be having this conversation. That's we right. We may not even have the time at all to, you know, to put this uh, conversation in the front burner. So we, 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 must not, we must not relegate this to the background. We must not will pretend that this is not happening. Mm. Or this is just someplace in West Africa. Oh, that's West Africa. No, it's a global issue. Mm. Remember, the part of why this is very complicated and complex is because we're talking about militants who are also links with Al-Qaeda, who are links with ISIS, you know, who are links with Al-Shabaab. That's right. Very active in Eastern, uh, in East Africa, for instance, in Kenya and Somalia. So in Nigeria, we have the Boko Haram, we also have the, the ISIS or ISFAR, and we have bandits. So it's a global issue, just like the pandemic. And we must not pretend, the world must not pretend that it's not, it is handling it. You, you cannot say you're handling it when you are not really happy. Mm. So it's like, I was with, I think it's, um, I believe it's Lyndon uh, Johnson, I believe, who says, you cannot say a man should go to hell if you cannot send him there yourself. Mm. So the world cannot say, oh, we've dealt with terrorists. We've finished with the pandemic, uh, with the terrorism, we've finished with the military. If you have not actively put in resources, infrastructure, everything that you need, manpower, intelligence, that you need to take it out. Otherwise, it's only wishful thinking that, oh, no, uh, you know, terrorism is taken care of. You know, we're technically uh, um, technically winning the war. Those are just semantic, and those are not reality. So we must, we must actively uh, make sure that this conversation are ongoing and put the humanness of this conversation being before everyone to say when we say, a thousand people 
have been killed. We're talking of men and women and children mm. who got promising life medicine, but they cannot, they have been taken out because of the activities That's right. of terrorism and, you know, of, of insecurity that we're talking about. That's right. Amaka Okoye, it's a seasoned and award journalist who has practiced both in and outside of Nigeria. She has covered varied beats, but her forte is conflict and crisis reporting. Now, she just gave us this amazing insight and in-depth analysis regarding the chaos and the political shifts in Burkina Faso. Abakaya, thank you so much for being our show. It's been a pleasure of talking to you, and we hope and I pray you as an international journalist will continue to do the good work and also be blessed and be safe and be well protected everywhere you go. Thank you so much for being with us.